I wake up to the sounds of the silence that allows for my mind to run around with my ear up to the ground. I'm searching to behold the stories that I told when my back is to the world that was smiling when I turn. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Solo Leveling. I'm your host, Beata, and this is a roundup of the rest of the books that I, well, um, <laughs> this is a roundup of the rest of the books that I read this month in March, and it was not many, but that's okay because I'm not judging myself for the quantity of books that I read anymore. But in any case, the show that we will be watching together this month is also Arcane on Netflix, which I'm excited to do my first rewatch of. So that should be interesting. But let's move on to the books themselves. And I think I only have three really, but I'll also talk about an extra webtoon that, that I've been reading this month that I've been enjoying. But first of all, let's get onto the books that I did not finish. And the first one is The Keeper of Night in the Keeper of the Night duology by Kylie Lee Baker. So the premise is that this book is a young adult fantasy that follows a half-reaper, half-shinigami. She flees Britain with her brother. They land in Japan to search for her mother and are forced to prove their worth by hunting down dangerous monsters who've offended the goddess of death by consuming too many souls. And that sounds like an awesome premise, but unfortunately, this book was not for me. My thoughts are that it starts off great, but the book felt like it was throwing mythology at me, rather than using it in an organic way to build the world. So far, I haven't latched onto any of the characters and found them all pretty bland. I also can't stand the romance that this book insert and its formulaic thoughts. And this is another audiobook that I haven't finished yet. And I'm struggling to get through this one, honestly, and that is The Mask of Mirrors, Rook and Rose, number one, by M.A. Carrick. So the premise is that Ren is a con artist who has come to the sparkling city of Nudesra with one goal, to trick her way into a noble house, securing her fortune and her sister's future. But as she's drawn into the elite world of House Mentis, she realizes her masquerade is just one of many surrounding her. And as nightmare magic begins to weave its way through the city of dreams, the poisonous feuds of its aristocrats, and the shadowy dangers of its impoverished underbelly become tangled with Ren at their heart. I really wish that someone had recommended this to me and that the synopsis didn't include, oh, this is like the lies of Scott Lamora, right? Scott Lamora, the lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Just because I'm like, it is, I can see the similarities in the politics and the way that you know, this is about cons and this is about like pulling a huge con but then getting lost and getting in over your head about family and all of that good stuff. But this just was not for me. I oh and I saw this book in a book so I was like, holy shit, that is a huge book. No wonder it's been taking me so long to get through the audio. And it's hard because with the audio, it's one of those books that I listen to at work. And honestly, I don't really care if I miss anything because I need to help a customer and I'm not glued to it. It's not something that I'm reserving to 
listen to in the comfort of my own homes because I'm like, I, I want to pay attention to this book. It's so good. And I really do think that the comparison to the lives of Lachlan Moro hosts this book um, because people are going to go in expecting the same action and expecting the, the, the complexity of those characters in Lachlan and the fun of those characters and found family in that book. And it doesn't do that. So I am 40% in and it's not drawing me in, but I will admit there are fa interesting facets of the world that Locke Lamora um, doesn't do because with Locke Lamora, it's kind of like, oh, these things, I don't know if I'm speaking out of my butt here, but I feel like in Locke Lamora, it's more like, oh, these, these things will come up when you need to know them and stuff, or they'll come up in a clever way as like a pretext for later events. Um, but in this book, like there's just really random tidbits of things about like fashion, let's say that's sprinkled throughout, which makes it interesting for sure, and does flesh out the world and build it up for you. But um, it's kind of useless as well, I guess, because I'm not sure how many of these things are going to come back later on. But in any case, the next book that I read for this month was My Wandering Warrior Existence by Nagata Kabi, which is a moving rumination of loneliness, love, and healing. And I really... Okay, so content warning, there's discussion of sexual assault and there's a graphic depiction in this manga. And there's also brief mentions of depression, eating disorders, and alcoholism. So to be honest, I was a little underwhelmed when I first finished Nagata Kabi's newly translated work, My Wandering Warrior Existence. Kabi's most famous works include autobiographical manga that focuses on difficult topics like depression, eating order disorders, and alcoholism. She has a simple art style and concise way of emotionally getting readers of emotionally gutting readers by tackling her experiences with these issues honestly. She's also undoubtedly queer and she sheds more light on her feelings about gender and sexuality in this manga. I think I was underwhelmed because it just wasn't as hard-hitting as I expected. Kabi admits at the end that she didn't have enough content to reach the page requirement assigned to her, and I felt this struggle at times. I expected her to discuss dating and the idea of love more since it's the main focus on this manga, but she only lightly touches upon each of these things. It seems strange to have entire pages dedicated to explaining how one dating app worked, and while her thoughts on love are thought-provoking, the answers were very simplistic. But maybe I was searching too hard for answers to my loneliness, so hearing the same thing I've heard from other people felt disappointing. But in the end, this is about Kabi's experiences and her feelings. It's great to see her reflecting on her healing process and how her search for romantic love in the face of societal expectations turns into an understanding of how any relationship with love in it works. There's many things Kavi's unsure about, and I appreciate how honest she is about that uncertainty. And she's really approaching things in a healthier way. Overall, this is a manga that may surprise people who are expecting more intensity, but my wandering warrior existence is about Kavi beginning to explore relationships at her pace. This includes her reflecting on her self-perception and just how certain she is of her uncertainty at times. It's a lighter read than you may expect from her, but as essential as any of her other works. And I think that's always a good sign of an artist 
oddest emotional state as well, hopefully, is that, like, take again Urobuchi, for existence, who did a lot of works about fatalism and just depressing-ass stuff, and how his stuff got lighter throughout the years, and hopefully that's, like, because of mental health reasons and that his mental health is actually improving. And same with Kabi, is that you can actually feel her, like, working through this now that she's getting the help that she deserves and needs, and it is great to see that, even if, like, and I think there's also something to be said for, like, how much you expect an author who got famous for writing about their trauma to keep on writing about their trauma in the same way, perhaps. So I definitely think that me being taken aback by how unaffected I was at the end, or just not unaffected, but how I expected to be much more affected. Like, I expected to be sobbing at the end. But I was like, oh, this actually made me feel a lot happier for her. And it made me feel like it did still give me something valuable about, you know, the idea of love and about finding your self-worth and just how your self-worth changes throughout time. And the society's ideal of like, you need to get married because that's the person that's going to love you and whatnot and how Kabi turns that focus in towards herself because she still has a really dangerous sense of of um, not feeling like she doesn't deserve things. For example, like food a lot of the times that she's working through and how, like it's hard enough already to focus on yourself, but then adding another person to that, even if they can be a support system for you and you can feel better by supporting them in return, like that's still something that's not quite there for her, which I really appreciate that honesty and that she went about it that way. And she had the awareness of herself to go about it like that. So that's great. All right. And we're going to move on to my next book, which was Kaiju Number 8, Volume 1 by Naoya. Or Naoya. I said the same way by Naoya. Matsumoto, suit up for a fun and stylish ride. I'm so glad I picked up Naoya Matsumoto's Kaiju Number no. 8 again after dropping it briefly. There are so many chapters out now available to read in English on Manga Plus, which is great since I'm ready to get back into the action. Kaiju Number no. 8 follows Kafka, such an appropriate name, a 32-year-old man who's given up on his dream of joining the Japanese defense force that fights kaijus. A chance encounter one day with a mysterious kaiju, a parasitic type maybe, gives him the ability to transform into one himself and, with the help of 18-year-old Reno, Oreno, another chance to apply for the Force. This would not only bring him closer to the action, but bring Kafka closer to his childhood friend, Mina. First of all, this is a good action series. The character designs are memorable, especially those of the kaijus, and would be awesome to see in an anime. There's an alien quality to them that's mixed with some human aspects. This creates some cool and memorable monster designs. As for the characters, I'm really gravitating towards Kikuru, a young genius whose position as the daughter of a military general has afflicted her with a sense of perfectionism and ego that covers her anxiety. I really hope the manga doesn't force some romance between her and Kafka, especially because she's 16, I believe, or close to it. I'm very curious to see how her relationship with her father will translate in future character development. On a side note, one thing I appreciate about the manga is the depiction of the Force uniforms. They're unisex and leave no to little room for fan service. I'm looking at you, Fire Force. 
but I've seen a few hints in this volume, thankfully of Nina though, who is 32. Overall, Kaiju number 8 is what you want from an action manga. Style, fun, and enough substance there to keep you in this world. While I'm not quite on Kafka's side yet, as he doesn't strike me as especially interesting, I'm happy to keep reading for the action and world building. Now I am going to move on to some spoiler territory for the... Um, for up to the most recently released chapter as I'm speaking, which is like 56, I think. And basically, I will say that I'm very relieved that Kikuru and Kaka just seem to have a sort of foster dad situation going on where, you know, her dad was really there for her and is very uh, strict and forces a lot of expectations on her, so she can't really be a kid and she doesn't want to like Kafka, but he's such a dad. And they have some very cute moments together where he's like, you did good, kid. And she's like, oh, goddammit, I don't like you. But that felt good hearing that from a father figure. And I don't like the way that they did her dad, though. It kind of felt like it was bringing him in. And then it introduced problems between him and his daughter, Kikuru. And then it just shut them aside. It's like, oh, but all along, he was a good man, right? Like... His wife died because she fought kaijus and whatnot, and so he put this expectation on her that she had to be the best no matter what if she was going to do it, probably because he didn't want to see another one of his loved ones die, but that led to a distance between them and a coldness. And instead of like really tapping into this, because, hey, I'm not a bastard, I don't always root for the parent to be abusive or like bad you know like I don't believe all parents are bad but even if they have like good intentions they can still screw up their children or screw up with their children so I think that it really felt like oh here he is okay he and Kikuru have a nice moment and then he just dies basically because he's taken over by one of the kaijus the head antagonist, I would say, who's going to use his body. And I think that was such a shame and a misuse of character. It felt very cheap, quite honestly. And I will say, as much as I like this manga, I can't take it seriously. I can't be invested really in its world because I don't really care for any of the characters except Kikuru. And I feel like that really is a shame because then the sense of danger is de-escalated and... I'm I'm just really here to see where it goes. And even with the world building itself, I'm kind of like, ooh, you can do so much more. I feel like, you know, once the fanfics and the fan art come out of Kaiju number eight, I'm going to be so much more invested in that. And I'm dunking on the series just because I've read more than 50 chapters at this point. So I I think I'm seeing a little bit of the cracks in there. And in some ways, they're inevitable as a manga is serialized and you expect a new chapter every week. So it's kind of hard to do very intricate world building when you don't have all of your plans laid out, perhaps from the very beginning, and you don't have all those details. And you're just trying to hook a reader in with like cliffhangers, basically, at every chapter to keep them reading. So I understand that pressure on Matsumoto. But at the same time, this isn't a series that I would go out of my way to buy. Like, I got this volume from the public library, Support Your Public Libraries. I'm glad I did, because if I read this volume, I definitely would not be continuing the series. If I had to buy it, I mean. Um, but thankfully enough, Manga Plus releases the latest third chapters for free. 
So, you know, 56, 57, 58, they're going to be free. But then once 59 comes out, 56 is going to be gone. You can't read that unless you have a subscription, I believe. So yeah, overall, those are the pros and cons of Kaiju number eight. I definitely think that if you are a fan of like Pacific Rim, for instance, which is like the go-to kaiju for, I think, Western audiences, you will be kind of disappointed in this because Pacific Rim had a lot of like visual flair and style to that. Not that this one doesn't, but Pacific Rim had more of that, I think, and more like interesting world building in that one. So this isn't quite up to its level, quite frankly, but I do like that opens a lot of doors hopefully to like more monster manga that isn't just attack on titan like jesus christ like the way that people compare kaiju number eight to attack on titan like why because they're monster mangas and the protagonist can transform himself okay cool i i don't know like at least hopefully kaiju number eight isn't gonna be imperialist so fingers crossed on that one. But yes, that's enough of Kaiju number eight. And we are going to move on to the next book. Hi guys, I am back. And I am back with Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. A country and family at war with itself. And this is the last book that I read for this month. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to start with a quote that stuck with me for this book. Death has burned everything else away and only genius remains. So content warnings, there's discussion of slavery in this review and slavery in the book, which entails all of the, you know, nasty things in there um, that slavery was back in those days. So Booth by Karen Joy Fowler was such a surprise to me, partly because of my own decision to not read the synopsis for this book, but also because I enjoyed it a lot. I don't typically get through historical fiction, but Fowler's ability to detail the lives of the family was emotional and carefully done in a way that fascinated me. Fowler's newest book follows the Booth family, a family that would go on to produce two stunning Shakespearean actors, but also the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. Fowler taps into the perspective of each Booth child as they grow up in a house where their father is in prison for nine months at a time, and their family is slowly fracturing as the tension between the South and the North grows stronger over the issue of slavery. By no fault of Fowler's, this book can be hard to get through, as she details the important political events America went through along with the Booth family's personal lives. And by hard to get through, I mean that it drags, like, there's scenes of, like, horseback riding in there that I was like, oh, this is boring, it adds nothing to the book. Um, she doesn't shy away from or romanticize anything, detailing the good and the bad in equal measure. The family is rather uninterested in politics, but the ironic remarks they make about their second youngest, John Wilkes Booth, is a tragic reminder of how he will thrust them into the public eye soon enough. But for the most part, the children are more concerned with living up to their father's name as one of the most famous actors at the time. And for example, one of the older brothers says he feels the ghost of father's hand as it landed on his shoulder, dubbing him heir apparent. In the author's note, Fowler writes, the tension over this issue, how to write the book without centering John Wilkes, is something I grappled with on nearly every page. I was very surprised at just how well she accomplished this, as John is the star of the family, but eventually fades into the background. He doesn't get more time than any of the Booth children who have their own concerns to worry about. Like Fowler, I was especially intrigued by the eldest Rosalind, because there's so little known about her. I also think Fowler did a good job depicting the hypocrisy of liberal values. 
that believe in a nation founded on freedom, but which also kept humans as slaves during that time. And on the side, it's like, yeah, you're waving your your flag and being like, America's the land of freedom. And then it's like, well, you've got a whole bunch of people who are just slaves. So where's their freedom, man? The Booth family isn't spared their part in this, and it comes to a boiling point with John, whose schooling with Confederate sympathizers brings him closer to the belief that slavery is the best thing to happen to the slaves. So the moment in which John kills Lincoln is shrouded with mystery, but the ripple is felt across the nation and to the Booths. Fowler really captures the difficulty of wrapping one's head around what you know of a person and what they've done. Overall, Booth is well-written and very interesting if you want to learn more about the family, and one of America's most infamous villains. The depiction of fame and a country at war with itself seeping into the personal life of a family is wonderfully done without being dry or preachy. So that's the end of the review. And yeah, I just really love like that idea of, you know, the Booth family, the patriarch of their family was this really famous Shakespearean actor, so famous that when he died, like governors and really important people would write stuff like, the last actor is dead now. Like, acting is forever changed because of his death. And he he was not a great man. And he spent nine months apart at a time from his family, and it turns out this was because he was actually a bigamist, and his family didn't know. Maybe the wife did, but the children definitely didn't know that he was actually married to someone in England. And so that was a whole scandal. And just the way that the father clearly had issues he became an alcoholic and he couldn't get help for that and he was seen as a burden eventually because he just kept on showing drunk to all of these plays that people were paying to see him in and eventually trying to do suicide attempts and he succeeded and that's how he died all of this, all of this fascination that people had at that time of the Boo family just uh, cast a shadow over all of them, especially the children who are growing up in this house where they've been taught acting is everything, like theater, like they can all recite lines from Shakespeare, but their father also doesn't want them to go into acting as well. And because of this, of course, like some of them really want to go into acting. And it's mostly the men because... <laughs> women who are actresses were seen as like oh you oh you're an actress oh my god you're, you're a prostitute like you know very like weird stuff back in those days like okay so a man can act but when a woman does it it's it's derogatory it's she's you know like okay make it make sense any case uh the shadow that was cast over these children and the fact that one of them grew to be very famous, Edwin, I believe. And funny enough, he's the one who had that whole thing of like, oh, he felt his father's ghost dubbing him heir apparent. And he really was because out of the family, I guess he's the other one that people in the modern day are most likely to know besides John. And John himself is so interesting just because he's not in there as much as you would think, especially since he is the second youngest. So he has the least amount of time in the world um, and in this fictionalized biography, I guess, than to exist. And yet you can feel like all of the hopes and the dreams that the family piles onto him because he's replacing one of their children who was also like the star and the joy of the family and how 
all of these expectations led to them forgiving him for things that they would not forgive him for and for spoiling him. And that combined with the fact that he could get away with so many things because he was typically good looking and that he went to school and formed a lot of connections with like sons of confederates. All of this like just came together to a boiling point. And it's so interesting because he is actually a very much a background character yet he's always looming in your mind as a modern day reader just because you know what he's done and you know this is the guy that is one of the most infamous villains in history and that moment is so well done when you know the family gets brought the news like john wilkes booth like shot abraham lincoln and one of them one of the sons is even like oh that's a common name like john booth you know so Maybe it's not him, but of course it is. And seeing the family's emotions of like, it couldn't be John, but then them passing it together and them getting complete vitriol from the rest of the public because it's like, oh, if your son did this, there's something wrong with you guys too. On top of the fact that the scandal from, you know, the patriarch of the family still follows them around decades later seeing all of this and seeing how none of the children wanted to grow up infamous because their father was so infamous yet one of them permanently cemented this family in history um at the very least because he was cemented in history as an individual it's so interesting to me um it actually kind of reminded me of malibu rising i feel like i'm going to say that a lot about dysfunctional families but reminded me of malibu rising in that it's that idea of you can't escape. There is no escape when your parent is so famous unless you do something equally as worthy, as attention-grabbing as that fame. But then at the same time, once you do that, you cast a whole new shadow over the rest of the family members. And um, that idea of, I guess as Hamilton The musical has that line in there of like history has its eyes on you like everything you do is being watched just because you're the family of this very famous actor and then all of a sudden you'll never be erased from american history you know um because of another man who made his mark and wasn't considering his family and but at the same time it's like it is a tragedy not just for the Booth family, but for an entire nation where at the end, Karen Joy Fowler has this like note about the march and the, you know, violence at the Capitol riot and how like history repeats itself. And like you, the family, the Booth family may ask, where did he get this from? Like, where did he get this hatred and this belief from that he would do this that he would commit such physical violence and it's like well this is what happens when like you have like the tension of like the cultural battle you know over an issue over the basic rights of a group of people is uh is brought to the boiling point and then you get people like this who are extremists and who do decide to enact physical violence and like it feels like a very much um this book feels like an echo I guess of uh you know a modern day writer writing about a family in the past 
but the ripples are still being felt today with the violence that happens. So, yeah, very interesting book. Um, you can definitely skim a lot of parts, though, I think, with, like, scenic stuff. So that is Booth by Karen Joy Fella, and now I'm going to move on to the webtoon that I have been reading recently. All right, and the webtoon that I'm talking about is Your Throne by Sam. And it's a pretty famous webtoon, so you guys may have heard of it, but I will read the synopsis. Tensions are brewing under the seemingly calm service of the Vasilios Empire, a kingdom ruled by the imperial family and the temple. Lady Medea Solon has lost her place next to the crown prince Eros, but resolves to do whatever it will take to win back what's rightfully hers. Will she reclaim her throne? This is an interesting webtoon because it's almost, it's adjacent to the sort of villainous reincarnation um, stuff that you may see, and yet it's not quite that. It's not quite that, I think, because it's about a body switching, basically. And it's about Lady Medea Solon, who has been so villainized by the public and who used to be the crown prince's fiance until he supposedly met and fell in love with like the beautiful Psyche. And she's blonde, she's a healer, she's so innocent and all of this stuff. One day, you know, Medea is, goes to the temple and is basically like, why? Why, why her and why not me? And it's not really about the prince. It's not that she had feelings for him and she's obsessed with him. It's about like, why did she get everything and I got nothing? Because Medea has been working. And this is spoilers up to where I've read, which is I think 85. Let me check for a second. It's like, it's the one where it starts going into siblings, basically, into the siblings. Um, hmm. Sure, 85. And she falls into the fountain and something happens where she switches. Is this what happens? I actually don't know. It's been a long time since I read the beginning, but uh, basically something happens where like they switch bodies and she, Lady Medea and Psyche. Soon a plot is discovered that the prince doesn't really care about Psyche and that in fact he has plans to kill her right after their wedding so that he can inherit her power and he can just rule as a single man on the throne. And the two women come, come up with a plan to help each other survive and to perhaps win against the imperial family, which is very scary as he is the crown prince Eros. He is not unintelligent for sure. I really enjoy how this is not a story of women being pitted against each other, which is such a refreshing thing that I think more and more writers are doing and I love that I love that it's about like these women helping each other and learning to appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses and it doesn't hate on either of them it's not saying well Psyche needs to get a grip because she needs to stop crying and you know her feelings are a weakness and it's also not saying well Medea like she needs to uh, she's so cold, she's so yada yada yada, all of these things that the public sees both of them as, really. And it's more about both of them do have their flaws, but from each other they unlock strengths that they may not have known about. And they also get a chance to be their true self in a way that they couldn't be with other people. So 
Nadia, for instance, uh, her father has brought her up since for a long time to be the empress. So her entire self-worth is based on that. And for Psyche, she was locked in a basement for most of her life because of her powers. And she's only brought up to the surface because the prince needs her. And so both of these women who have been really abused um, find ways to like just be each other with each other. And I really ship them, actually, <laughs> even though I know they're not going to get together. But I really love it when they are just like having tea or whatever and they're making plans. But like you can see how much they enjoy having a friend, dare I say, with, you know, the only other woman that they could be with um, truly. Because everywhere else around them, there are spies and people judging and waiting to report on them. One thing I really noticed, I guess, is the um, the names and like the meaning of the names, I think, was really well done. Because usually like you would have some like generic European name, uh, like Raskilion, like Vladimir Vyanovich. I went very Russian, um, but I don't know, like something along those lines, or Eugenia, Britannia. <laughs> this one, like the names are very well chosen and based in Greek mythology. So with Eros, Eros was the son of Aphrodite and is where we get the idea of like love shoots with um, like the Cupid's arrow and all of that because Eros had the power of like arrows. And that's how, you know, love sprung forth. For Eros, there was a whole thing with his romance with this woman, this human girl named Psyche, which is, you know, the blonde lead's name in this, um, Psyche Callisto or something, and how she wanted to see his face, but Eros didn't want to show her the face because I think if he showed his face, Aphrodite would find them or... um. He didn't want her to just fall in love with his physical appearance. So they spent many nights together and she did fall in love with him, but she still wondered about his face, you know? And, and they spent most of the time in the dark. And one day, I think um, Aphrodite or some other god was just saying, like, don't you want to see? Don't you want to see his face? Or maybe some other god didn't. I am not up to date, really, on this. But psyche gave in to the temptation and lit a candle on saw his face and she was like oh, he's hot oh no he's hot like but oh great for me but then he woke up and he was like you saw my face that was the one thing i asked you not to do and so now our relationship is over and he didn't kill her but you know he just left and I think that's very fitting for Eros and Psyche, that idea of like, you want to see the, tr the face of this god, of this man you worship and you love, but you're not going to see it. Like, or if you see it, you're not going to, a tragedy is basically going to strike. Um, and that is what happens for Psyche is that when she switches body with Medea, she sees him and she sees how manipulative, how she doesn't, she's not cared for by him really and that she was just a tool and she sees the true face of love and she realizes that she was never really loved or even in love like he saved her and that formed a very strong attachment between them and with Medea Medea in Greek mythology is this witch who was known to I think turn men into pigs uh 
either Medea or Circe, they kind of both mix up in my mind. Um, she might have also been the one that like fed kids to Jason. I'm not sure. But in any case, like she was a kind of witch figure, you know, that I think some modern day women have like spun her story so that it's actually very quite uh well she had reasons because she was living in a patriarchal society and actually her moves were girl boss moves or something like that. I think that that was an interesting idea to put it on her because she is kind of a witch like she some sort of magic has transformed her and given her another chance at the crown but this time she doesn't necessarily need a man to take it and some magic has made it so that she has switched bodies with this woman who she hated but now she's learning to appreciate more and more so i'm up to like 85 and there's this whole thing with medea and her brother decius i think or something or whatever his name is derek i'll say and i think their relationship is really fascinating because it's the story of two siblings that grow up in an abusive household where the son is seen as perfect except in one thing and the daughter like inadvertently competes with him just because she she wants their father's attention and she doesn't understand why he the brother can't do his full job completely and they have as they grow up they have distance between them as like both of them are pulled apart by like well you you know in his mind like I'm doing all of this for you like I I want you to marry the prince so you can escape the family but in her mind she's like you've chained me more to this family and like I'm I'm not interested maybe in like escaping in this manner you never asked me my opinions you are the one that wants to escape through marriage not me I can get through this I can be the head of the family and I can live in my own way without needing a man to help me in that way so I think that relationship is super interesting and I I don't know if they're going to make up they probably will and most of all I think what's heartbreaking is the fact that once he discovers what their family has been doing which is like horrific you know trafficking of children specifically that they said that they were sponsoring to live better lives from an orphanage and from the poor people of this country he just leaves like he packs his bags one night and just leaves and she is devastated because she's like you're running away and you're leaving me and you know what kind of person our father is and you're just leaving me and absolutely brutal like you can see where Medea why Medea wants to be empress so badly not just because of it's the idea it's the role that her father has put into her head and she's internalized that but also because she this really is her one chance at power as a woman is to you know marry well it's unfortunate but that's her reality is that her father is very powerful and she if she became the empress she could finally like be free of him and I think she managed to accept that, like what her brother wanted for her all along. But just as she managed to accept that, he leaves. And that just devastates her even more and makes her one power even more. So it's very, it was very well done, I believe. You can read this on Webtoon. And that is the end of my reading roundup. Yes. <laughs> so watch out for the Arcane episodes coming up soon. And I will see you guys next time. I'm actually going to put an ad in between here and the, and the uh, outro. If you guys want to listen to that ad and support me, that would be awesome. Um, I managed to get the 
Stripe thing working. So money is now an option for me, which is great. And I really appreciate it if you listen to the full thing, if you're a regular listener, and if you ever want to hit me up, you can at me on Twitter at X-I-A-B-E-A-T-A. You can leave a comment, I think, on the Anchor website where I make this podcast. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys stay safe and have a good night. Bye. Everybody wants to be my enemy. Spare the sympathy.